A decade ago, Samantha Allen was a Mormon missionary knocking on doors in a suit and tie. Now she strives to tell the stories of LGBT communities found in traditionally red states. They told me, um, we're, we're like cactuses down here. We have to grow in the hard places. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, hear stories of people who've worked to turn their communities into places of acceptance and growth across the country and in Georgia. And we cross over to the other side with the Ghost Brothers. When you're hunted by a house guest, the paranormal turns personal. That's what the Ghost Brothers will be. We help the living find peace with the departed one hundred house at a time. Learn how three Atlanta-based fraternity brothers took on a life of chasing spirits across the country. We ain't scared of no ghosts. And we're coming back right after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A decade ago, Samantha Allen was a Mormon missionary knocking on doors in a suit and tie. Now she's married to a woman and a GLAAD award-winning reporter who set out to tell the stories of LGBT people in red states. Her book, Real Queer America, follows her own story, and those are people like her who've turned their communities into places of acceptance and growth. Samantha Allen is among the writers at the upcoming AJC Decatur Book Festival. She'll be there on Saturday, August 31st. I caught up with her when the book was first published and asked her what the freedom of traveling meant to her. For me, roads are places of possibility. Cars, you know, historically, um, as a transgender woman, cars were places where I felt like I could be myself. You know, they were the first places I could wear the clothing I felt comfortable in, apart from prying eyes and um, and just kind of drive. Um, so cars have always been, to me, places of freedom uh, and escape. Well, this book was the product or the chronicle of a six-week cross-country road trip through LGBT communities in red states, not necessarily people who normally call attention to themselves. So how did you find the folks to talk to? You know, a lot of my interviewees I had kind of met through personal connections. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have lived a lot of my life and made a lot of friends in red states like Georgia, Tennessee, Indiana, Texas. So a lot of the process of writing the book was reaching out to those friends saying, hey, I'd like to come visit you. I'd like to meet other people in your LGBT communities in your local areas and and find out what you're up to, um, what kind of activism you have going on, what struggles you you're dealing with, uh, what you're celebrating. And in addition to finding people that you knew, how did you decide how to plot this out? Was it personal relevance, political relevance, or maybe some kind of combination? There was a little bit of both. So a lot of the states that I chose to visit were places that I had a real deep personal connection to. Uh, Utah is where I went to college before I came out as transgender and transitioned. Georgia is where I went to graduate school and transitioned. I made lifelong friends in Tennessee. I met my wife in Indiana. Um, so a lot of a lot of the states were kind of personal choices. And then there were other places like Texas where I wanted to be because there were major political developments in LGBT. National news happening, and in that the year I wrote the book, 2017, Texas was considering a, a bathroom bill that would have uh, restricted restroom usage by uh, your original birth certificate gender marker. And so I wanted to be there in Texas that summer to to see the protests against that bill. So how was that to face the logistics of traveling as a trans person through these kind of places that were considering that legislation? For example, did that make things hard? 
hard in communities that weren't accepting? You know, it's it's always made me a little nervous, especially um, after coming out to go on road trips. Um, you know, when I first came out and I was more kind of visibly transgender than I am after, you know, seven years on hormones, um, I was so scared and I would plot out, you know, oh, I'm going to use the restroom at this coffee shop at this point. I would literally like chart it out in advance. But at the same token, you know, I want to say that I found so much uh, kind of welcome and hospitality in red states as an open queer person and um, kind of uh, you can kind of get in your own head about some of those safety concerns because I've felt welcome almost everywhere I've traveled. Tell us some of those stories that might have surprised or touched you where people showed you kindness and hospitality. Oh, gosh. Um, so many. But the one that most immediately jumps to mind was uh, going back to Utah uh, to a town called Provo. It's about an hour south of Salt Lake City. I went to school there in uh, 2005. Um, I was still in the closet at the time. Um, it just wasn't imaginable to me that I could be open and out in the LGBT community in, in Provo at the time. It didn't seem to exist. And then when I went back, there was this amazing LGBT youth center called Encircle that was uh, literally across the street from the Mormon temple in Provo. Um, and I spent most of my days there um, hanging out with LGBT youth and, and their parents, many of whom were still devout Mormons, but wanted to figure out ways to support their kids. Um, and I met one kind of Mormon guy in his 40s. He pulled me aside. He found out I was going on this road trip and with this very serious look in his face was like, do you do you need money? Like, I'm, I'm worried about you. Are you shoestringing this? And I told him, like, I'm all set. My, you know, I've got an advance from my publisher, that kind of thing. But he seemed, I don't know, ready to write me a check for the next week of the road trip right then and there. I couldn't believe it. Well, you mentioned that these conversations about bathroom bills were going on at the time, and obviously you'd need to use bathrooms during a six-week road trip. But did you have any run-ins that concerned you? You know, uh, not really. I mean, I think it's ironic that, uh, you know, Texas legislators have, have tried so hard to keep transgender people from using the right restrooms. But in the process, they've probably caused a lot of transgender people to use the restrooms in the Texas state capitol because they keep coming back to protest the bill over and over again. And you, you have to go to the bathroom during the protest. So mm -hmm. these legislators are actually kind of inadvertently um, bringing all the transgender people in the state into their front yard. Well, you went, Samantha, deliberately to places that are often dismissed as the flyover states. So what did you find are some of the perceptions in red states and in the South that maybe you were even trying to change or challenge with this book? You know, I think I think kind of the dominant narrative I wanted to shift was I think in the the 20th century when we thought of LGBT people we thought oh they they get on a bus in Kansas and they show up at the Big Apple you know with a suitcase in their hand and they build a life in New York or um, you know or maybe they build a life in San Francisco and when you look at what's happening demographically uh, in the country with uh, millennials who are more likely to identify as LGBT moving south and west and with more people in the 
South and West coming out as LGBT, um, the kind of queer center of gravity in the country is really shifting, I think. Uh, in ways that have largely gone unnoticed. And, and that's kind of a sentiment I encountered over and over again was, was not really feeling seen, you know, being in places like, um, like Atlanta that have a thriving LGBT community, um, but that still kind of flies under the radar of national consciousness. Well, of course, yeah, the urban environments, people who are different from one another kind of squished together in apartment complexes or buildings. But we do see plenty of studies that show that interactions with people of different races, religions, sexual orientations, and so forth help erode the discrimination and, and prejudice. When you were in rural areas of red states, did you see maybe, you know, good, open people who just maybe hadn't had the chance to know or interact with people like you? Yeah, I mean, one of the most rural places I went to was called New Hope, Texas. Um, it's uh, outside of Dallas. And my friend, uh, Jess Herbst, is the mayor or was the mayor of that town at the time. And she was the first openly transgender mayor in Texas history. Um, and I had the privilege of going to this kind of uh, city hall town council meeting with her. And, you know, it was clear that the residents of this town hadn't really met a transgender person before Jess came out. They were still kind of figuring out, you know, how to, how to address her. I saw, you know, folks at the, the meeting, um, kind of slip up on her, her pronouns, um, you know, calling her she and her, uh, time or two. Um, but they're, they were kind hearted. They were, um, trying to do better. And the fact that they had known Jess for, uh, years before she came out, um, kind of really, I think, changed uh, some some hearts and minds. And I, I think that's what we're seeing, even in, in more rural parts of the country, is, is LGBT people coming out and interacting with their family and friends and, and just kind of slowly washing away some of those past prejudices. My guest is the author and journalist Samantha Allen, among those at the AJC Decatur Book Festival. She'll be there on August 31st to talk about Real Queer America, LGBT stories for from red states. Samantha, I think that is something that a lot of people are afraid of or of tripping up on, you know, using the right pronoun. How, how do you kind of help somebody that you're just meeting through that kind of conversation? I think it's important to just kind of take people where they are. I can draw from my own personal experience, and I wrote about this a bit in the book with, with my own parents, you know. Um, when I came out to them, it took them by surprise. And, um, you know, of course, kind of in the early days of my transition, I, I was really insistent that they, they get on board quickly. I felt like I was making up for lost time. I was 24 years old. I had wanted to transition probably, you know, since I was a teenager, right? But kind of looking back now, I wish I had been a little more patient with them, kind of, I don't know, took them by the hand and walked them through it a little more slowly mm -hmm. and carefully than I did. How would you recommend somebody lead parents by the hand differently? I would recommend getting them online. You know, there's a lot of vocabulary that, that people have to learn. Transgender, cisgender, which means not transgender. Um, you know, what are pronouns? What different pronouns do people use? Um, and I just think it's important that to kind of exercise compassion on, on both sides. 
Well, in addition to towns like New Hope, were there any other little communities that you found in smaller towns, Texas, Tennessee, Georgia, Utah, where you saw burgeoning movements or people, were they generally connected in the LGBT communities or living, as you said, you know, these little satellites that spread out in other places? I, I think one of the most surprising things to me is is just how ubiquitous these little satellite towns are. There's one everywhere, and, you know, and I had plotted out a lot of the trip in advance. But when I was going through Arkansas, people started telling me about this town in northwest Arkansas called Eureka Springs that I had never heard about before. And they're just like, you have to go, you have to go. Um, so we drove kind of an hour and a half north of Fayetteville through these kind of beautiful forests. It's in the middle of the Ozark Mountains. And then suddenly you're in this charming little town full of bed and breakfasts and underground springs. And, you know, you walk in any gift shop and it's owned by some gay male couple that also runs a bed and breakfast in town. And it's just this magical little place in the middle of Arkansas um, that, you know, I think most people probably don't even know exists. And there's probably places like that in every state that I've never heard of before, but would love to visit. Were any of the people who you spoke to in these towns facing any, let's say, outright intolerance or even hostility? Or or did they talk to you about inroads that they had made? And, and how was that done? The most impressive thing to me as an LGBT journalist is getting the opportunity to kind of go on the ground and talk with folks about how change is kind of actually happening. Because from a national media perspective, often the stories we hear are just, oh, this anti-LGBT law got passed or this anti-LGBT law got stopped. And we're not really seeing what's happening on the ground. And, and what's happening in these red states is really just kind of the simple power of conversation, uh, friends and family members talking to each other. I mean, one of the most moving moments of the trip for me was um, being with a Mormon uh, mom in Utah whose son had just come out as transgender, I think like two weeks before we interviewed them. And it was just incredible to see them talking through this. And, you know, here, here was someone who 10 years ago might not have understood LGBT issues or, or been as sympathetic to them as she was today. And it had just happened from talking to her son, asking questions, trying to figure out how he could be happy. We're going to head into a break and come back with Samantha Allen. We're talking about her road trip through red states as an LGBT woman. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with On Second Thought from GPB and Samantha Allen. She's one of the writers who will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st. Samantha is a reporter who set out to tell the stories of LGBT people in red states. Her new book is called Real Queer America, and it follows her own story and those of people who've worked to turn their communities into places of acceptance and growth. When we spoke earlier this year, I asked her when she started writing the book. Uh, shortly after the election. Okay, so um, the election of 2016 then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So did your focus change over the course of the Trump presidency? Uh, you know, um, 
I think the Trump presidency was a, a real wake-up call for folks. Um, I think it was more of a wake-up call for folks living in blue states, coastal states, than it was for some of the people that I interviewed and profiled in the book. You know, um, a lot of people that I met in red states, LGBT activists, organizers, and just everyday LGBT folks, they weren't necessarily surprised um, that, that Trump won. I feel like they had more of a read on on um, where his support came from and, and what we're up against. Uh, uh, you know, progressive-minded folks in the country are up against, um, and and so it was kind of interesting to go um, kind of from, you know, my day job as a national reporter back into these communities that had sort of seen the outcome of the election coming, I feel like, more than the establishment press did. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, obviously, that is something there was much hand wringing after the election from the media, the national media saying, like, how did we miss this? But you were getting a very close up view. No surprise to you. Yeah. You know, I mean, part, one of the things that I think has really been interesting is the how did we miss this question is often phrased as, I don't know, how did we miss the story of the Trump supporter in the red state? Mm. Uh, but part of what I wanted to write about and address in the book is, is I think we're also missing the the LGBT, uh, you know, women's rights supporters in red states. I feel like we're not hearing enough stories about uh, progressive people in red states. Um, I feel like we're just missing a lot. Uh, and I want it to contribute to the conversation. Um, you shouldn't just be asking yourself, how did Trump happen and how did we miss it? You should be asking yourself, who are the people living in these places that helped elect Trump who, who didn't want it to happen, who fought against it and who under his presidency are, are fighting to make their states more welcoming to LGBT people, people of color, immigrants, mm. that kind of thing. Well, and you write in the book about places that have been accepting for a long time, those meccas, uh, in addition to the small communities like Atlanta, still the best place to be queer or bi or trans in the country, you write. Why is that? The queer community in Atlanta is just, it's so vibrant. It's so warm. I love Atlanta Pride. When I lived there, I marched in Atlanta Pride. I walked around and, I don't know, filled canvas bags full of swag from all the booths and that kind of thing. Um, Atlanta's just an amazing, beautiful, diverse city. It was a privilege to live there for as long as I did. And, and part of what I feel like gives the community that sense of cohesiveness. You know, it's not absolutely perfect. No community ever is. But uh, what a lot of folks uh, say to me is, in Atlanta, everybody in the LGBT community kind of had to come up together. The gay folks, the bi folks, the trans folks, everybody had to kind of fight at the same time. Uh, you compare that with a state like, say, Massachusetts, where you have kind of same-sex marriage rights get way out in front of trans issues. Uh, and it leads, I think, to a little more disconnectedness in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, in Atlanta, I just kind of feel, I don't know, I you hang out with everyone. Um, everyone hangs out together. Atlanta, as you mentioned, was a place where you had your first conversations about being trans and transitioned. What were those conversations like back in 2012? And what was the context? Oh my gosh. So I was in graduate school at Emory University in the humanities. Like theoretically, I shouldn't have been all that afraid, but 
even in even in 2012, even after a few years of living in Atlanta, I still had a lot of preconceptions about Georgia, about the South. I just assumed that it wouldn't be a very welcoming place to come out. Um, and I, I, I was worried, frankly, about living in the South and, and coming out and being trans. And uh, a lot of those fears just kind of evaporated. I came out to my mentor at Emory University, Michael Shutt, who does a lot of work with Georgia Equality. Um, he was a, 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 the head of the Office of LGBT Life at Emory University at the time. And he, he was just like, oh, great. Um, we have, you know, a world-renowned hormone expert and endocrinologist at, in the health center. We've got a, you know, a counselor at the Emory Counseling Center who specializes in these issues. And also our health insurance covers all of it and uh, most of the cost of surgery. So you're all set. And I I, I don't know. I couldn't believe it. Um, in transitioning at Emory in Atlanta and Georgia, it, it couldn't have been a smoother experience. And I, I don't know. I had a lot of kind of um, preconceived notions that were just kind of burst overnight. You mean about the South? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, my my uh, counselor at the Emory uh, Student Health Center is this uh, lovely queer woman who kind of motorcycle rides with a lot of queer women through the South. Uh, you know, she kind of helped me calm down about coming out in Georgia. And I, I just realized how many people there were in Georgia who really cared about these issues and in a, in a really earnest way because they could see the stakes of it on the ground. You can, you can see why it matters so much. Are there people that you encountered and they were not in as tolerant communities as those that you're describing and, and wonder why they might be staying in a place that was harmful for them or felt dangerous or perilous? Yeah. You know, I think, the place where I encountered that the most was um, the Rio Grande Valley in, uh, you know, places like McAllen, Texas, um, recently uh, popularized because uh, uh, Trump went down there to talk about the border wall and his national emergency and that kind of thing. But that's a sidebar. Um, when I went to the Rio Grande Valley, I met a lot of LGBT people there who who said that they were there because they couldn't leave. Um, it's one of the most impoverished areas of the country. Something like one in three people there live in poverty. And uh, for undocumented folks in that part of the country, you know, you have this kind of almost militarized border to the south. And then you have interior border checkpoints um, 100 miles north, which make it, you know, hard to get up to Austin or up um, uh, Dallas or that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, a lot of places that I went to that were more tolerant, uh, people were like, I like it here. I want to stay here. I want to help change things here. I met people in the Rio Grande Valley who said, I'm, I'm here because I can't go anywhere else. Mm -hmm. But even then, they were starting to say, well, I'm stuck here. I might as well make it more inclusive and welcoming. I, um, you know, I might as well make this a place that LGBT people can call home. And I met some of the most amazing young Mexican-American folks there who were, who were just like doing incredible work. Uh, to reshape the Rio Grande. So they felt like they had to be responsible in some way for for opening up minds or showing that, you know, we're here, to use the old statement? Yeah, I mean, 
they kind of felt like their backs were against the wall. I met one um, one non-binary person there uh, who uses they and them as a, a pronoun, um, and they they told me um, we're we're like cactuses down here. We have to grow in the hard places. Um, and you know, this was a person who's who's gets shouted at on the street when when they're out in public or. Um, you know, experiences some of the kind of anti-LGBT sentiment that can crop up down there, um, despite it, you know, being an area that votes blue on on kind of other social issues. And and they just felt, I don't know, this remarkable resilience in the face of that that sentiment. Samantha Allen will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on August 31st to talk about Real Queer America, LGBT stories from red states. It strikes me that that is kind of the trajectory of activism in some way, right? You know, when you are the first in a place, you either choose to be, you know, kind of disappear and assimilate as best one can if you are an other, so to speak, or become an activist. And, and it's, it's a kind of hallmark of the first wave of activism. And then the second wave is a little less active. And then the third or fourth, you know, might be a little more comfortable in their spot, not wanting to necessarily make waves. Do you see that as a sign on some level of success? Um, the, I I kind of worry about complacency uh, personally. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why I found writing this book so energizing is because I was largely visiting places that were in that kind of like first or second wave of LGBT activism, um, you know, and being someone who also spends a fair amount of time in kind of more liberal coastal states, I, I worry a bit about people, I don't know, letting their guard down because, you know, even in places like New York. New York didn't get transgender non-discrimination protections into its state law um, until this year, 2019. Uh, a lot of people probably assumed it had happened already. Um, so when when people let their guards down, we don't see progress as quickly as it should happen. And then we can also see kind of surprising rollbacks like uh, this happened over a decade ago, but it's it's one of the most kind of visceral ones. Uh, Proposition 8 in California when um, same-sex marriage was, was suddenly made illegal uh, took a lot of folks by surprise. They thought, how could this happen? It's California. Um, but if you get too complacent, if you don't show up to the polls, if you don't um, kind of mobilize or organize, things can take you by surprise. Mm. Well, after all of your motion around the country, East Tennessee eventually felt like home to you. Why, why was that a place that felt right? I first went to East Tennessee for a fan convention, actually, like a comic book convention. Um it was this little town in East Tennessee, about an hour west of Asheville, called Johnson City. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it before, and I just met the most amazing people there. Um, a lot of uh, kind of like bisexual and queer people, and um, I met my best friends, uh, Jen and Justin there, kind of instantly fell in love with them and their their dogs, uh, Red and Doc, and their tortoise, Zelda. It's just kind of this beautiful tucked away little town with a kind of Al Capone-esque downtown area, very like 1920s feeling railroad running through the town. 
it's it's just a, a gem. And I think for me, it was it was sort of um, I, I don't know emblematic of of what a lot of small town America can be like. It's out there waiting for you, and there are so many places that you've you've never heard of, but you could I, I don't know pull out any state map and find a little place and look it up online and be surprised by what you find there. Well, you, like many people who you met, did maybe not necessarily got on the bus in Kansas City and lit out for the big city, but did leave things behind and and maybe had to break ties in order to find their communities of choice and their new places to live. What does that do to the whole notion of home and place? You know, that one's identity is often associated with a home. So what does it offer to make a new identity in a new place? I I think one of the biggest ideas I explored in the book and part of what you're getting at is like uh, home is something you carry with us and people have really complex relationships to their own personal notions of home. It's always been a challenging question for me. Um, I've lived in uh, California, New Jersey, Utah, Montana, Indiana for a summer, Atlanta, South Florida, Washington State. Uh, I've lived all over and never really stayed anywhere super long since turning 18. Um, and so for me, it's hard for me to even answer the question of where where is home. Um, I've always kind of coveted a more kind of permanent sense of home. It's one of the joys of writing the book was I got to meet people who had a real sense of of attachment to one place. But you're right, I did I did meet people who had to kind of leave those attachments behind. I think one of the most um, heartbreaking examples of that is uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Um, uh, it's a city that a lot of young uh, young folks leave. Um, and that, you know, hurts the economy of Jackson, Mississippi. It hurts the state politics of Mississippi, if you care about LGBT rights. Um, and I, you know, I have friends, I have a friend, a good friend in Atlanta, Kaylee, um, mentioned in the book, who, who grew up in Mississippi, but had to leave it behind for work opportunity. Um, but she feels just so shaped by this place. Um, you know, I met her in Atlanta and she, she wouldn't shut up about Jackson, Mississippi, <laughs> frankly. She just talked about it all the time to the point where I was like, I have to go to this place now. You, you talk, you talk about it every time we hang out. Um, and I, I went there and, and I just saw what she loved about what she loved about her home and I saw how it had had shaped her um my Kaylee is a very um outspoken ally to the transgender community and I saw how being in a place like Mississippi where you have to be outspoken and brave in order to kind of get by I saw how it it her home had made her who she was um and I think no matter where your home is or if you have a fractured sense of home you're always shaped by the places you've been Mm. Samantha, I was joking a little bit about the idea of using this as a green book for LGBT people, but do you think that people will use it as a guide? Gosh, I hope that everyone who reads it goes to Johnson City. <laughs> I, I am. You're going to welcome them all? <laughs> yeah. I'm not a Mormon missionary anymore. I will be an evangelist for Johnson City, Tennessee. It's amazing. Samantha Allen, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Samantha Allen, who turned a road trip into a book with Real Queer America, LGBT stories from red states. I spoke to her when the book first came out, and you can catch her at the AJC Decatur Book Festival this Labor Day weekend. Stay with us. There's more on Second Thought coming up after a short break. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. We rarely hear historians talk about the recent past. Well, tomorrow I'm going to speak with Princeton professor and CNN political analyst Julian Zelizer. He and a colleague traced U.S. history since 1974 to help understand how we got here. Fault Lines dissects political, economic, racial, and social fractures to reveal the roots of the hyper-polarized country we live in today. We hope you will join us for that. Something strange. Picture this. It's Friday night. You're all alone and suddenly you hear creepy noises. Maybe even see shadows from the corner of your eye. Who are you going to call? The Ghost Brothers. The trio of Atlanta-based one-time fraternity brothers started investigating places reported to be haunted on TV back in 2016. Their new series investigates residential phenomena like the strange goings-on at the Dow family home. It was a very heavy plate glass mirror. It defied gravity and stood up, somehow shattered before it ever hit anything and caught my leg. It cut me from my knee to my ankle. It cut the artery, severed the tendon. Now our belief is that the bad man is responsible for what happened. Ghost Brothers Haunted House Guests is new to the Travel Channel. And Dalen Spratt, Jawan Mass, and Marcus Harvey are the trio investigating pleas from families experiencing paranormal activity. And they're with me now. Hello. Hey, how you doing, Virginia? How's it going? Great well, morning. I'm so excited to talk with you in the daylight, in the safety of the studio. Right. <laughs> Dalen, I want to start with you, because you lead the group, and you organize each location for the investigations. So how did this whole ghost hunting thing begin for you? Ah, I mean, it's interesting. So back in the day, back in the day sounds like a really long time ago, but like mm-hmm. back in maybe 2011, uh, I was just watching one of those ghost hunting shows on television, and I just realized there was no representation of us on any of these shows. There was no young minorities doing any type of paranormal investigation. I was just curious why was that. Like, I grew up in the church. My mother's a pastor. You know, Marcus used to work in the church. Jawan has a strong relationship with God. It's just like, I wondered if our spiritual background played a part of why none of us were ever interested in it. Yeah. Like Mar- yeah. Marcus always says, what do you say, Marcus? Hey like, man, black folks believe in the ghost, but it's the Holy ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Come on. Church. Preach. Well, Juwan, you started hunting ghosts when you were a kid, right? In graveyards. Pretty uh, courageous. Didn't know I was hunting ghosts at the time. Well, what <laughs> what actually, did you find? I actually thought I was being chased by a ghost. So, uh, back <laughs> oh, they at, were hunting you. <laughs> <laughs> and now the tables have turned, haven't they? Um, but no, I actually was uh, in a small town in Mississippi. Uh, my grandmother lived close to a graveyard. And with the local kids, we used to dare each other at night to run through this graveyard that was suspected to be haunted. Um, I took that dare. And yes, there's that courageous nature right there. And I started running through the graveyard and I felt this presence behind me. It was just like an energy that was fo- I felt like something was following me. And I turned around and immediately thought it was the kids. But no, I was still by myself. And uh, as I'm running, you soon realize that I don't think you can outrun a ghost. 
I don't, I don't think it's possible. So, <laughs> so you guys have been turning the tables and running back at them. Now I've been chasing these ghosts. Yeah. Marcus, how about you? You were the last to join the group. What you got you started with this paranormal pack? Uh, well, actually, um, Dalen was one of my clients. Um, I used to cut hair um, in the AUC um, where Dalen and Juwan went to school at uh, Clark Atlanta. And I was actually uh, Dalen's barber. And um, every, we all know that, you know, your barber and your stylist are like the people that you share pretty much everything with, every idea, every aspiration, every interest. And so um, as a result, we were just having a conversation. And he was like, hey, man, say, man. Why ain't nobody that's like us? Hey, 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 man, say, man. Why ain't, no, why ain't nobody like us on, uh, on TV doing ghost hunting? And so I was like, I don't know. Why aren't anybody like you doing <laughs> ghost hunting on television? He's like, man, we should do it. I said, yeah, you should do it. Yeah, man, we should do it. They just kept saying we, and it just ended up being we in in uh, Savannah, Georgia with me, Jawan, and one other guy, and it was all good from there. Well, Savannah is one of those places. There are so many stories of ghosts. Yeah. There, are, you know, On any given night, there are like 10 ghost tours walking around the place. Yeah. But I am curious about that. What you said earlier, Dale, and you know, you all come from pretty religious backgrounds. So isn't belief in or especially contacting the other side frowned upon? Yeah, it's very, very taboo. Yeah. My mother's a pastor of a church. And I remember we were talking not too long ago, and I was, you know, we were just having a conversation. And I've never seen her look at me the way she looked at me. And she was just like, Dalen, if you truly knew what you were doing, you wouldn't be doing it. Well, it was because it's wow. malevolent? It's, yeah. it's all bad? Just opening myself up to that whole other side. She was just like, because you don't know what you're actually doing and what you could be opening up and who you could be bringing forth or conjuring up. She, she was just like, yeah, so maybe you're, you being naive is what's like a, a superpower. Oh, uh, yeah, right? Yeah. If, you do, if you're not afraid of it, yeah. then you're just going to go in. Well, let's hear a little bit from the show. The debut episode for the season is called The Bad Man. Here's a clip. You'll hear full disembodied voices you think is somebody else talking to you. Um, I was in the kitchen cooking food for us, and I hear my name. I turned around the servant's stairwell, and there was a man crouched down looking around. Okay, super creepy. And you visited this home. It's called the Wedding Cake House in Michigan. Now, from what I can see, you listen to the experience of the family there. You hear what they have to say about their encounters. You bring it all your ghost detection machines. Then what happens? Uh, Go ahead. Uh, I, well, just almost going back to what you were saying, too, um, about the spirituality yeah. as well as the equipment. Um, I think one of the things that helps us um, with what we do as far as in the paranormal, our group specifically, is that we do have that experience in the spiritual realm where we do cover ourselves a lot in prayer and uh, just really make sure that we have ourselves like really prepared spiritually so that when we go into these places, it's not just one of those things where it's like, you know, a naive, a naive situation where you just have a piece of equipment in your hand. And like, and like Dalen said, conjuring up stuff that you don't know you haven't, you're conjuring up. So uh, when we do pull up and show up with our, uh, Equipment, what we normally do, we just pop the trunk on them ghosts pretty much. <laughs> and that's what we do. We uh, bring our equipment out and measure up and see what happens and then try to find a way to help these families through these ordeals. So. Well, well, then what is the goal? Is it contact? Is it validation for the people who are living there? Is it coexistence or clearing out? What, what kind of solutions are you adding, Juan? So I think the goal shifts from uh, resident to resident. Um, sometimes it's confirming their paranormal claims. Sometimes it's offering a paranormal resolve. Uh, and then sometimes it's even taking it as far as like bringing in some help to see if we can offer them the tools that they need to kind of 
spiritually cleanse this property. Um, so, like, I think our goal shifts, but at the at the core of it, it's just helping these families, right? At the core of it, it's really kind of identifying if there is this paranormal phenomena that could be potentially hurting, harming, or even just living amongst this family. Right. That Not must be. Rent. Yeah. <laughs> right. Not paying rent. So Come you're on. the eviction party. Hey, oh, yeah. Or I'm trying to figure out how they can put on some of this white bill that they cause and, you know, turn on the lights on and off. You know, you got to put something on that. Okay, but part of the whole thing that you do is also research the history of a place. Mm-hmm. So what does that add, Dalen? I think that's your, that's kind of yeah, your area. Yeah. I think what that adds is just um, a level of personability. Like you kind of know what's really, really going on in your personal space. So this is your house. This is where you're sleeping. This is supposed to be the safe place that you are. And you have something that you most likely can't see. You don't know what it is. You don't know where it came from. You don't know who it could possibly be. So when we get to come in, we get to dig a little bit deeper in front of that surface. So we're looking at property records. We're looking at death certificates. We're looking at um, draft cards. We're looking at anything possible, possibly that can be linked to this property, your house, or even your family. And we're bringing up all type of information. So like I said, it just lets you know we get to put a face to who could potentially be in your house, a time frame from which they probably came from, uh, a name. So it's just yeah, all the who, what, when, whys, and wheres are answered once you start digging that deep. And when you are answering those questions, are you trying to uncover, or do you often uncover, maybe that's the better question, a wrongful death? You know, I mean, that's one of the beliefs about spirits, that they're kicking around because their their business is unfinished. Yeah, so uh, we have an episode coming this season. I don't want to give too much away, but let's just say that the spirit is very, very active because of... Uh, a rumor, I would say. I huh? would say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a rumor. All right, you got me. <laughs> yeah. We actually bought the whole town off. Yeah, one, we right? had to bring the whole town out to correct this rumor. Oh, yeah. Trying yeah. to clear somebody's name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that is actually in order. Juwan, we just heard from Juwan Mass. Before that, Marcus Harvey and Dalen Spratt. They're the Ghost Brothers, and their new show, <laughs> Ghost Brothers Haunted House Guest, which is such a good name, um, comes on the Travel Channel on Fridays at 9 o'clock. Um, Marcus, I hear you consider yourself the charmer of the group. Ah, uh, yes. Does that sense of charm work on ghosts? Um, well, I would say that I, I share that responsibility with Jawan. Uh, we have our ways of charming, uh, very similar in effect, but uh, Dang, just what different. am I, just a doll? Aggressive. Well, you just got done uh, getting all the dog. all the research. Like, we don't pick up not one research <laughs> pen, and you didn't not pass not book. one. You're like, yes, well, I, I researched book. everything all night. Not a book. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, yeah, I just use humor for mine. I mean, I feel like... Like we said, um, with our whole group, we're very just, you know, uh, we're very a tight knit group. So we kind of use our chemistry around to kind of make whatever's in the house feel a part of that type of camaraderie. So we look at it like, you know, typically when we're looking at all these spirits, it's somebody who passed. So if someone, you know, passed, you know that they typically respond better to people who are more positive than negative a, a lot of times. So we try to keep that positive um, outlook and really try to make whatever's in there like, oh, OK, yeah. He's the ghost brother. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here and here. I'm in here. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, how can it help but be scary? I mean, yeah. oh, super scary. Terrifying. I mean, and you guys go and you like pull up and you pull out your sleeping bags and you spend the night there. The I like pull how you up, said that. Pull we up. hop out, pull we up. pop the it? trunk and then we get to it. I we see that you woke ghosting. a little bit. I see you woke talking about pull up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> 
Well, do people do write and contact you from all over. So, Dalen, how do you pick the locations? And uh, Marcus, I'm by no means saying that he's the only he person. See, there we go. Yeah. No, it's definitely <laughs> a group effort. Uh, we pick our locations based on the story attached to it and the family need. So some cases are, you know, the families are in dire need. Like there's one case where uh, a gentleman is actually floating the rent between two properties. So like no one wants to pay two mortgages, especially for one place that you're not even living in. And especially for another one that's infested by potential entities or poltergeist activities. So if they sell this house, you think we get commission? You should. I can see see what this game is all Uh, about. Are we moving into real estate? Uh, Is it Ghost Brothers (laughs) Haunted Real Estate, (laughs) man? You know, I actually remember reading something about this, that in China, you know, they're building all these huge, huge buildings, Uh and they're trying to sell all this real estate. And one of the markers that competitors do is they sort of tag a place as being haunted because nobody will go near it if it's haunted mm. so they make more money on their buildings wow. so i'm just saying you can you can have that for free right. as part of, of your game you can use out there <laughs> i see you out here Radio the know. game is to be sold well, i want to do i do want to get to the gizmos because you bring out some pretty good stuff to talk to or communicate with let's say ghosts. here's a clip from the upcoming episode this week where you bring out a very special gadget i just had one quick why are all of our devices going bonkers right now? We set a rampart at the top of the stairs where Jeff has made mention to something running up and down the stairs. Look, 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 look. Oh. Every time, every time we weren't looking at it, it started going off bananas. Beep, 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 beep. Joan, what's going on there? Oh, my God. That's that rim, Remy pod. We call it the Remy pod. It's actually called the Rim pod. Uh, it's going off due to some electromagnetic energy in the area. And we can't seem to find it. It seemed like it was just kind of running from us. Well, it used to be, you know, Ouija boards and seances. Is, is technology now the key to communicating with the other realms? I think so. I think so. I think the other realm utilizes technology to, to, to communicate with us. Uh-huh. Um, I think it, it, it pulls from these energy sources. So uh, technology is definitely allowing the spirits their, their, their voice, if you will. These spirits have Wi-Fi. They do. <laughs> spirits have Wi-Fi, too. And they don't pay for that either. And they I don't pay for nothing. They're so tech savvy. What is the craziest thing you've ever seen? Hmm. I think... Uh, um, Old City Jail. You can tell them about that. Old David. City Jail. Uh, that was a... That would be a full, full body, like, shadow figure. We were uh, investigating in Charleston, South Carolina, and we was in this place called Old City Jail. And Marcus and Jawan were upstairs, and I was looking on the monitors downstairs watching them. And as I'm watching them upstairs, I literally see on one of the monitors this shadow figure. It was a full person, arms, lead, head, neck, feet, walk past the camera. And it wasn't them. They were walking towards the camera, and this they would have essentially bumped right into this shadow figure. And it was just super cool because the cameras were recording and we caught it on camera and you can review the footage and we all were able to see this full shadow walking past this like it was just weird like it wasn't like it was projecting on a wall or anything like it was a full walking (laughs) shadow shadow (laughs) they got caught on film so that's probably the craziest thing i've ever seen it was just super cool that everybody else was able to validate it as well wow 
So what, what do you tell people who say like, oh, this is just, you know, you can fake that kind of stuff on camera. You can you can put anything on your electromagnetic. Yeah. There's heat on everything. I mean, what do you say to the skeptics watching you go through these houses? I think um, one of the best lines I even heard Dalen say was, ghosts are like roaches. Everybody acts like they don't have them, but they do. <laughs> so uh, I feel like that's the key thing, because typically every time. You know, we tell tell people what we do. They always, you know, give us the first initial uh, reaction. It's like, oh, man, I don't believe in ghosts. Is it real? Is it real? And then as soon as we walk away, hey, hey, real quick, real quick. Before you leave, uh, in my basement, I always smell old black and miles. And I think that's my granddaddy. Because he used to smell, he used to always <laughs> smoke black and miles. You know, I just think that might be him. And that's how it always comes off. So it's like, no matter who, what. When, where, everybody's had some type of experience or had some type of curiosity to something that they could not explain. And when they find guys like ourselves, they really just, like, are opened up to that curiosity. Like, oh, I know somebody's an expert, finally. You know, and it just so happens to be somebody who looks like them a lot of times with us. All right, Dylan, I'm going to ask you, because you mentioned your mom, a pastor. Does mm-hmm. she watch the show? She does, and only because she loves her son. <laughs> Man, his mom be having a watch party. Don't she let her does, right? Right. Watch That's it. my baby. Cynthia, now you know my baby owns so what we talking. <laughs> he ain't worshiping the devil, though, I promise. I, I promise. promise He's a man of God. Come on. <laughs> Oh, Dalen Spratt, Juwan Mass, and Marcus Harvey, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Have a great season. Yes. They are known as the Ghost Brothers, and you can be sure to tune into their show. It's called Ghost Brothers Haunted House Guests, and it comes out on the Travel Channel on Fridays at 9 o'clock. Just started a new season. And thanks, guys. You are listening to Ghosts by Michael Jackson, because why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? And before we go, we are still getting some reactions to yesterday's segment on whether video games cause violence in the real world. Don writes, radicalization of young white males by exposure to white supremacist propaganda occurs in online chats, not in the games themselves. Don, thanks so much for your comment. You can join the lively conversation now going on in our Facebook group. GBB Radio is on Second Thought. Let us know your thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. I ain't scared of no ghosts. This is On Second Thought.